Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. Today's program comes from the 2018 Chief Medical Officers and Biopharma Summit. The topic discussion we are featuring is on a case study on preparing for the challenges of late-stage trials. This was given by Dr. Mark Curry, Senior Vice President, Chief Scientific Officer, and President of R&D at Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. The next Chief Medical Officer Summit is April 4th and 5th at the Hilton Back Bay in Boston. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to introduce Mark Curry, who's President of R&D and Chief Scientific Officer at Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Curry has made several critical scientific discoveries throughout his career that have greatly advanced our understanding of the regulation of blood pressure and the balance of sodium and water in the body. These discoveries have played a role in finding novel treatments for a broad range of diseases, including congestive heart failure, acute and chronic pain conditions associated with arthritis, and more recently, a novel approach to treat patients with painful GI conditions. Dr. Curry's discoveries and efforts have undoubtedly helped to improve the lives of patients throughout the world. Mark has led the company's R&D efforts since joining in 2002. As an aside, we briefly crossed paths at Sepracor back in 2002. After I joined, and then Mark said, I'm, I'm time, to, time for me to go, basically. Um, Mark has over 30 issued U.S. patents and is the primary inventor of linaclotide, which is a 14-amino acid peptide that activates guanylate cyclase C and is first in class and has been approved for the treatment of chronic idiopathic constipation as well as IBS-C in adults. Prior to joining Ironwood, he led discovery efforts at Sepracor and pharmacology at Monsanto and Searle. These efforts produced several important medicines, including Celebrex and Lunesta, two medicines that I suspect you all have heard of. And with that, let me turn it over to Mark to share his case study, preparing for the challenges of late-stage trials. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to spend time in front of this group sharing some of the learnings that we've had over the years. Uh, I think some of the things that we'll emphasize are very similar to what we heard in the, one of the earlier sessions uh, from Fran and Richard around some of the challenges that you face in uh, drug development. I would say linaclotide brought with it almost every imaginable challenge you could, you could uh, think of uh, relative to uh, things that uh, they discussed, and it's kind of all captured in one program. So it's kind of fun. I hope you enjoy it, uh, you know, and we'll uh, hopefully have time to chat uh, either after this, uh, directly after this, or over lunch. So I think um, to give you a little bit of background, uh, linaclotide is a 14-amino acid peptide, as Jim indicated. It's got three disulfides. Um, so quite a challenging molecule to make. Uh, we actually searched high and low for uh, this type, for this particular peptide, so that it would fold primarily into the active form. And we'll go over that a little bit. But uh, inherently, it had lots of choices into what it can fold into, 15 to be exact, of just the uh, isomers it could fold into. And then our early uh, searching for the uh, peptide, uh, we really had that as part of the setup, was to make sure you had that as decreasing the manufacturing challenge. It decreased it, and it was important. But there were obviously still a lot of manufacturing challenges over the years. And I want to 
jump from that very first day we found linaclotide and then to where it is today, and then we're going to fill in the blank kind of from there. Uh, so it's uh, a little over four years now since linaclotide was launched. Uh, it uh, has quickly become the number one uh, drug uh, prescribed medicine for IBSD and uh, chronic constipation. Uh, we have over 200,000 prescribers in the U.S. Uh, it's approved now in over 30 countries. Um, it's been a quite active global program that's been run out of Ironwood, a you know, fairly small biotech at the time. Uh, and then uh, we've treated in the U.S. over 2 million patients. Uh, and it's got uh, the best uh, as far as unrestricted access to, to, uh, from the payer perspective, and it's had over 8.7 million prescriptions, and that was as of really the first of this year. Uh, it's obviously growing quite dramatically. It, it's uh, over the years been growing anywhere from 16 to 20% a year, so pretty dramatic growth over that period of time. And I'm going to take you through a little bit of science. I promise I won't uh, dive too much, but I think it'll help understand a, a little bit our passion of why we are so excited about this drug and why we kept putting uh, our efforts into solving the problems that came up uh, that were described earlier that you face in these type of uh, product that you advance them forward. So first, our drug, 14-amino uh, acid peptide, I'm guessing most of you know 14-amino acid peptide, it's not going to cross the uh, epithelium of the gut. It stays in the intestinal lumen. Um, so uh, when you think about how this drug works, it works in your intestine. It's taken orally, and then it works on the luminal surface on a receptor called 1-L8-cyclase C right there. Linaclotide comes in um, and binds to that particular receptor. It then increases cyclic GMP. That receptor is a dual receptor, and it's the enzyme of guanylate cyclase that converts GTP to cyclic GMP. Cyclic GMP is a well-recognized uh, second messenger. It works on a kinase that then sends signals uh, that regulate the uh, uh, various chloride channels and bicarbonate channels, and in the gut it regulates uh, uh, the uh, cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator to, to allow the uh, secretion of chloride. That then um, follows up with basically dragging sodium and water in a passive manner so that you have more of that, uh, those particular solutes into the uh, uh, lumen of the gut. From there, though, that we understood actually pretty well when we started this program. We understood this mechanism of how we might be able to improve constipation treatment. But then we had this request from our commercial team, and I think most of us have had those requests over the years, well, you got to do something better. And our better was told that we need to work on pain. And I said, well, as a scientist, I don't know what this mechanism is going to do on pain. May do nothing, may make it worse. A lot of the other treatments in this field make pain worse for these patients. Or maybe we'll be fortunate enough it'll uh, decrease pain. And that's what we actually observed. And then the big question, right, is, okay, this thing's working on the luminal surface of the gut. How is it treating pain? It's not getting to the brain. How is it doing this? And what it's doing is really interesting science that we've found is that, uh, whoops, sorry, if we go back, 
Um, if you look right here, we found cyclic TMP is not only an intracellular second messenger, which was well understood, it's an extracellular mediator of a message, and that message works on the afferent pain fibers, and basically it shuts down those fibers on their firing rate, so you decrease the perception of pain. And that's about all I'm going to say about that mechanism. We've got tons of work that's been done in that area, and it's hugely exciting. But at now this, this talk is more around what are the challenges you face along that way. And let's go to peptide again. 14 amino acids, all natural. What does it have to do? It has to survive a ridiculous environment in the gut. It has to go in and survive first the stomach, pH 1 for peptides. Usually there's a lot of hydro, hydrolysis that occurs and breakdown. Not of linaclotide. You can boil it in acid for a period of time, over 30 minutes, and it would be stable. Um, there are also proteases. Again, it protected against those proteases because of those disulfides. Mother Nature is a wonderful thing. Um, and then uh, the other thing we went back and basically refound over the years uh, is if you went back to the 1950s and 1960s, there was a lot of work about what was going on with the luminal digestion of proteins. And that work described proteases, but also highlighted most of those proteases were being pulled apart by a hugely strong reducing environment. So our peptide got to withstand that, and that's why 3-disulfide is actually quite helpful. Uh, it protects against a lot of that reducing environment. Uh, and then clearance just being pushed through the intestine. So could we have our peptide actually working long enough so that it could be given once a day, which it is, or at least uh, make sure that it had enough activity. So those were first challenges, and really that's where diving in and making sure the peptide from the very day one of our discovery effort, we were putting that on the really top of the list, that we've got to have this, or otherwise we're not going to make it as a program. And we're going to run into problems that we would want to later say, you know, we should have waited till we got the right one. So we, we did a lot of discovery effort to get linaclotide, make sure it was the right peptide that could withstand this type of environment. And then um, if you look at, uh, you know, what we described also is this, uh, we needed to show pain. Um, and we showed that first in preclinical data. And I always get asked, how do you show that? How do you show an animal has reduced abdominal pain? Uh, that'll be another discussion, but uh, basically, if they're not much different from us, uh, if you have abdominal pain, let me describe to you, first thing you probably do is you protect your intestine. You squeeze, your skeletal muscle tends to get more rigid, and it tends to, the animal tends to protect that area of pain. We do the same thing, but with the animal, we can measure it with just measuring skeletal muscle contraction of their abdominal musculature. So it's a pretty quantitative measurement. Then we needed clinical data. First clinical study we did where we had the ability to measure pain, we saw linaclotide working almost immediately. Uh, so it was really quite uh, connected to what we were seeing in the animal studies. But we needed to develop from a regulatory point of view a true abdominal pain instrument. And so we spent a lot of time working with the agency, making sure we documented those minutes uh, and, and saying what would be a tool that they would agree to that we could then document it and have it in our label. And uh, so we made a great progress there, I think, as far as helping define the field for that. And then if you think about regulatory paths, 
Um, we know a lot about small molecule regulatory path. We know a lot about biologics. We even know a lot about peptides as far as injectable peptides. Oral peptides, I can tell you, there was almost no understanding from the regulatory authorities about that path. And I will tell you things as far as for those of us uh, have a biochemistry background, not only was there very little knowledge, they wanted to put this drug in the small molecule approach. So we ended up having to do all these cytochrome P450 studies, despite very clearly showing that the drug would be in proteolized over time, not getting into the body. Uh, so there were those kind of push and shove that we had to do with science. We had to bring really hardcore science, and then occasionally we just had to say, enough. We will check the box, and we will keep the program moving. Uh, but it was interesting on a global point of view, the difference between the FDA that was very adamant that there was a small molecule and have to go and do these type of efforts versus the EMA that was very open to the science and then those discussions and then the two groups uh, coming back, one saying in the European environment, why are you doing cytochrome P450? Have you learned something that's bad about cytochrome P450 in this drug? No, but we're being told we have to do it from the U.S. And the U.S. was saying, well, why don't you do it in uh, uh, in the uh, European environment, why aren't they asking for this? So it was quite the go around for it. And then um, going back to manufacturing, and I'm going to put in a word for a lot of the, our approach, and I think we heard earlier about the humility of uh, being good partners. And I think that uh, humility goes also not only to uh, company partners, but also we partner all across the board, and I think most of us do with contract, contract manufacturers, with CROs, uh, with a number of people, consultants, that are really bringing important contributions to our work. Uh, and we needed huge help uh, in uh, the ability to develop analyticals and then be able to make this peptide. Again, it's, it's got 15 possibilities on its isomers. Luckily, we spent the time in discovery making sure we honed that down to it making mostly one, the active one. Uh, and then also multimers, it has almost unlimited possibilities, right? So, uh, and then to be able to contain those ultimers uh, and make sure they didn't have an impact on the manufacturing. And I would say here's again a place where we started out in this peptide field and then uh, what we were getting advice uh, from former regulatory people and even the agency to begin with that less than 5% multimers would be acceptable. That rapidly went down over the program, and that was for products that were on, their products on, in uh, the injectable area where that is true. We were rapidly pushed to less than 1%, and ultimately we got it down to less than 0.1%. But that would not, without, without a lot of partnering, without a lot of expertise being brought in from contract manufacturers who helped us along the way in this. And that's, the, again, the NMR structure. Um, uh, I like to say this was the kind of wild shot that we got in one of our, um, uh, one of our publications uh, and certainly meant a lot to the team as we started to understand where this peptide binds uh, to the receptor. So looking at uh, stability, again, most of these patients will want it. It's a primary care drug for the most part prescribed initially by the gastroenterologist and then moved to primary care. Uh, we needed to make a room temperature uh, peptide that, uh, or formulation that we could have on the market. 
And this almost really caused disaster for us. We, we really struggled here. Uh, and there were times when we thought we had it, and then all of a sudden, uh, some change in manufacturing would cause a dramatic shift in its stability. Uh, so we spent a lot of effort, uh, and it would work that we did with our partner Forrest at the time, now Allergan. Uh, but we, we overcame this. But you can imagine, this peptide, any peptide that you can think of, they typically love water if they're all natural amino acids. So water then causes hydrolysis and breakdown. So we had to find ways that we could block that. And it, it was quite a fun effort, I think. At the time, it didn't seem like so much fun, but uh, it, it really turned out uh, one of those fun stories when you're sitting down with colleagues who helped this and you're having a beer, this always uh, comes up and says, yeah, we overcame this. Uh, and then I think um, kind of getting to the point now of where we are and what we're, where we're going to go. Um, you know, this is a huge number of patients and 40 million potential patients out. And the, I want to put another constraint on, we recognize early that if you look at the peptide supply capabilities in the world, if we really reach 40 million patients, and this is just US, if we reach a third of those, the challenge of the size of the manufacturing for a peptide plant is extraordinary. Uh, and there are, there's only one or two sites in the world that could handle this, and that the, this would be the only peptide they were making. So we really need to make sure the molecule was potent. That's one of the things we built in early, so we could get around some of those concerns and be able to make enough of this peptide that we can make world supply. Uh, and, and that was accomplished by making this peptide so stable and so uh, uh, highly potent. Um, so as we go forward now, uh, linaclotide, as I indicated, is growing quite dramatically. We, we certainly always keep a watchful eye out for anything in the manufacturing side and the clinical side, but we're feeling quite great. Um, our next generation is, uh, is designed to be only a lower GI pain drug. It releases only in uh, lower colon, where it is not really a, a secretory capability, so you don't have fluid secretion. Um, and then uh, we have early data with that program suggesting that we've accomplished that with our delayed release program, uh, and that'll be the next challenge is making sure we can keep that, mo that uh, formulation stable, but early signs are quite interesting and quite supportive. And with that, uh, if there's any time left, first uh, let me thank uh, this is a huge effort uh, across a number of companies. Um, I, I would not do justice to putting names up there, so I'll, I'll say the U.S. and rest of the world teams. U.S., we were throughout this uh, partnering with uh, Forrest and uh, ultimately Allergan from the Phase 2B studies on. Uh, and then rest of the world, we partnered with AstraZeneca uh, and Astellas. Uh, we're approved in Japan, and we're looking forward, uh, hopefully soon, to approval in China with AstraZeneca. And with that, I'll stop, and I don't know if we have time for questions. That's great. So we'll take a few questions. So congratulations again on the success of Linzess. It was a fun story to watch and observe from afar. Um, we've heard at different times whether CMC can or cannot be much of an issue in development programs. Certainly my own experience, it often has been and is a challenge, and it sounds like you went through you know, quite, of, uh, quite a number of challenges you had to overcome there. I was just wondering if you could give us a sense, based on your very broad experience across the industry with all the development programs you've been involved with, how much CMC issues have come up and, and what you can do to proactively address them. Great. Um, so I think uh, 
as we looked at the CMC efforts, and this is some of the learnings I've had over the years, uh, you know, when you're new to the work that you're doing in this area and you think you know everything about discovery, but you're not used to working in the development area, um, you know, you're, you're, you've got your active molecules, you're so excited they're working in your animal models or your cell-based models. Um, you know, in my early days, I certainly didn't put have on my radar screen because I didn't know the problem that were ahead. Um, and I had wise counsel from a number of people that were trying to alert me to the problem that would lie ahead and, and either CMC or regulatory or whatever uh, those later stage development aspects are. I wasn't always the smartest person in that sense. I should have listened earlier in some of my programs because you cost yourself time. Right, uh, we're all interested in trying to advance uh, our product to patients. And along the way, if you're impatient and you settle for something that you think works, but somebody else is in the later stage maybe saying, you know, I got worries about this chemical stability or I have issues with this particular approach. I think it's well worth listening to. Um, so by the time I had gotten, I'd had enough scars on my back by the time I had gotten to where we were with Linzess, uh, I understood we had a lot of work to do in the discovery side to make sure we had a shot. And even with that work, um, because this area, you know, oral peptide was just unprecedented, uh, we still ran into problems that, in hindsight, I now know some things that I could apply to the third generation that we would try to do uh, and to make the molecules even more stable to reduce some of the concerns around formulation. One of the things with linaclotide, it is very difficult to change the formulation in any manner. It, to put any other chemical neck to it, it is that C-terminus uh, that in uh, the N-terminus, they're both fairly reactive. Uh, so we, we have to have a very narrow balance of our, our um, various components in the formulation. So trying to do co-formulation with other products, I, I think, is off the table. Uh, so I think certainly um, you know, our learnings over the years is we really need to, I, I encourage my team, in the discovery side, let's talk to our development team, show them the molecule, then lay out what are the big concerns. And it's a great day when there's no flag goes up, but almost all of our molecules at one stage or another, here's a concern. Let's then, you know, there are ways to uh, go in and you know, uh, go in and uh, do the chemistry design around those. Um, because the time you're going to spend in development that may even kill the program uh, is just too, too expensive and too, even though you might think you can get there quicker, you're, by going in rushing from discovery, you need to slow down just long enough to make sure you have the right molecule. So um, I was just curious what about the early days, like uh, funding and partnering, because, uh, well, I know the peptides are not the sexiest sort of pharmaceuticals, and I don't understand why, because the science is beautiful, and with peptides you can sort of hijack body's own mechanisms for your therapeutic purposes. So. Uh, how you were able to partner in phase 2P, but what about before that? Did you really struggle to get funding and partner? Yeah, it's a great question um, because uh, I would say peptide, uh, it's interesting with peptide, no real big pharma has peptide capability. They, they all go through contract manufacturing organizations 
for their supply if they have injectable peptides. And when they think about it, they do think injectable peptides. Getting people, I think it's a relatively straightforward concept. Our receptor's in the gut. We're going to deliver a compound to the gut, and it's going to be a peptide. But there was a lot of resistance to even that type of notion. Um, I think uh, the, we did try to partner earlier. Um, and it wasn't until we had that pain data that people said they're willing to kind of go out of their mode. Because I had no doubt, and you could see it how people interacted with us uh, early, is they were going through their checklist. And on that checklist, you know, that there, there would be a manufacturing concern around the stability of the molecule or the manufacturing of the molecule. And in, in their own shop, they didn't have the capability to help solve that. So they would say, look, we're not going to be a very good partner for you because uh, we don't know how to solve that versus we, we can work together. And that, that was the beauty of the forest relationship is both of us knew we didn't know how to solve this problem uh, and the problem that we uh, were likely to run into. But both of us figured that you know, it, it was going to take real pioneering and uh, they were charged up about it. We did most of the discovery effort around that as far as what excipient might stabilize the molecule and then they would put it into the manufacturing and we'd take to see if those translated to each other. Mark, I was just wondering if you could give a little bit more detail in terms of just the clinical pharmacology program and sort of the balance that you, you walked um, with a small peptide, knowing that, you know, there's probably not a lot of drug-drug interaction studies that actually need to be done versus those that, you know, sort of were requested. Yeah. Um, so we tried to fight or make our case with data. Uh, and we had, nobody had ever done the type of characterizations that we were doing on the metabolism of this peptide. Uh, we were getting uh, the benefit of, you know, having uh, GI experts provide us patient samples of their intestinal lumen and us uh, taking the fluid and doing the metabolism directly there. We could do it in animals to some degree, um, but uh, it was really that science that we kept coming back to and saying, we, we feel we understand the metabolism of this peptide extremely well. Uh, we had essentially less than 0.1% exposure. Um, when we did the human clinical trials at the test, tested dose, we had no clinical exposure we could measure. Um, and we would go back to uh, what is the route of metabolism, where would the likely interactions be. Uh, so when it came down to it, though, right, uh, the, the, we were told we had to do in vitro uh, studies to show that we weren't having drug-drug interactions on cytochrome P450, and that's what we did. And we generated those, literally, get this, we generated those probably in the last three months of the phase three program. Wow. You know, <laughs> who wants to be doing drug-drug interactions in the last three months of, of a phase three program, right? That, is, that were exploratory at this particular point, so. I just a kind of a somewhat unrelated question. I was wondering if you could comment on the recent announcement of the split in Ironwood between the preclinical and research and development assets and or commercial assets. Great. Um, so I'm truly excited about the possibility with the split of the company. Um, and I'll, I hope I don't ramble too long. So stop me if uh, you know if I'm, I go too long. But. Uh, you know, as we looked at it, the model of, of our industry had changed so dramatically when we started. 
So when we did Celebrex, um, Celebrex launched and uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, it was one of many, it, there were generic insects on the market all over the place. Celebrex launched and was over 900 million in sales in the first year. I think we're gone past those days now because of the payer environment. Um, so when we started Linac with linaclotide in 2003, I think we really thought that we could build a primary care company that was able to move very quickly into profitability. And, uh, and we've done well with the drug profitability, but as we were trying to grow a company that also had a strong research pipeline. Uh, and a, a diverse research pipeline. We really ended up with a commercial company that needs primary care product, and we also have this, what we think is a hugely exciting soluble guanylate cyclase stimulator program that really has the chance to treat a lot of very important late-stage diseases, end-stage uh, organ failure-type diseases. So that's where we ended up with this kind of two companies almost that are uh, have very different needs. Um, so uh, that's really where we've evolved to is we can supply the, commer the commercial need company has several late stage assets in its pipeline right now that could feed the commercial effort. Um, but the, the soluble guanylate cyclase stimulator uh, part of the company, uh, it really needs to dive into a lot of very interesting orphan and rare diseases and some very severe diseases. And it just didn't feel like those discussions anymore were compatible inside the same company. Uh, so that's why we ended up seeking the split. And literally we started, uh, we, we would evaluate this while we were watching the market change and the, you know, the dynamic change in the, our industry. We've been looking at these type of options for a number of years. Uh, and it wasn't until like this past board meeting back in October that we sat down and said, you know, it's probably a reality now. Our two companies, one of the HEC stimulator part of the company had come so mature, it's got two phase two assets right now, and it's got a number of discovery assets. So that's kind of where we ended up. The next Chief Medical Officer Summit is April 4th and 5th at the Hilton Back Bay in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Again, theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.